0: Welcome to Small World, Big Problems, a podcast from the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. My name is Luke Lytle, and I'm a graduate student at Johns Hopkins SAIS. My guest today is Andrew Boyd, who recently retired in August 2023 as the director of the CIA's Center for Cyber Intelligence, or CCI. Prior to this role, he served in many positions in the Operations Directorate of CIA with a focus on human intelligence. Prior to serving at CIA, he served as an officer in the United States Air Force. Andrew Boyd is currently an adjunct professor at the Alperovitz Institute of Johns Hopkins Sice, where he's teaching US cyber policy and the cyber aspects of the US intelligence community. In this interview, Professor Boyd and I discuss his transition from human intelligence to cyber intelligence, the cyber threat landscape from the US perspective, the integration of the private sector into US cybersecurity strategy and current policy discussions about the future of U.S. strategy in cyberspace. As a director of cyber operations at CIA, Andrew Boyd has had extensive and direct experience with all these topics. We hope you enjoy this episode of Small World Big Problems. All right, Professor Andrew Boyd, welcome to Small World Big Problems. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Luke. appreciate the opportunity. All right. So we'll get started with your career background. I wanted to ask uh, about your transition from human intelligence to cyber intelligence. And the goal of the question is to show the audience, I think some of them might be intimidated or think that cyber is a little bit inaccessible. So I wanted to ask about what that transition was like from human intelligence to cyber intelligence.
1: Well, so, uh, you know, my last job at CIA, as as you noted in your introduction, was as Director for the Center for Cyber Intelligence, sorry, director of the Center for Cyber Intelligence. And, and you know, CCI, as we call it, the, the Center for Cyber Intelligence, has sort of one foot in the human intelligence camp, so to speak, and one in the technical uh, operations, technical collection camp, in, in addition to having a very robust strategic analysis capability, both on nation state and non nation state cyber threats. Uh, in 2023, and frankly, throughout most of my career since uh, 19, you know, since you know, the height of the war on terror, technical operations have, have frankly worked hand in glove with, with human operations. So I, I think the transition started very early in my career and just uh, you know, sort of went over time to the point where I, I guess the director of CIA thought I had a good mix of those skills and leadership Uh, in those skills. So I I don't really consider it a transition. Uh, Perhaps in the Intel community, it's an evolution uh, of where we do what we call blended operations, human, uh, technical operations, cyber operations, and then all of the other ints, which provide the appropriate analytic picture to our policymakers and other decision makers uh, throughout the government. I, I, from a personal level, fell in love with, with cyber operations and and everything that went into countering uh, the cyber threat. So, so one could see how that would be a a personal evolution. I do not think, you know, smart professionals should be intimidated by the cyber world. You don't necessarily, we need lots of computer scientists, electrical engineers, uh, and, and, and other deeply, deeply technically skilled people. But there's a whole variety of career fields that go into that. And I, I think, frankly, the Alperovich Institute with, within the School for Advanced uh, International Studies at Hopkins is a perfect example of that. There's a lot of very technical people in the Alperovich Institute, but there's a lot of folks that bridge the gap between international relations study uh, into the cyber world who don't necessarily have a deeply technical uh, background. And I think you know, that's a microcosm of the broader world when it comes to technology and national security.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Bridging the gap from the other disciplines over to cyber intelligence. So what would you say are some of the skills that you developed working in human intelligence that still transferred over well to cyber intelligence?
1: So I, I said this and I, I, you know, as a as a adjunct professor at Hopkins, I, I, I forced and I, I say that in air quotes, although you can't see this because it's a bo- podcast. But to, to focus on Risky.biz, an Australian cybersecurity podcast, which I was a guest on uh, earlier this year, and, and Patrick Gray, the host of the show, asked me that a, a very similar question, like, what was the the most important skill set or attribute of a successful uh, intelligence officer in CIA? And, and I said, uh, you know, people... Frequently say, you know, I come from the Directorate of Operations and I was a case officer. People say you have to be extroverted and be able to meet people and, 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 and do that sort of thing. And obviously, on the, the Center for Cyber Intelligence side, have deep coding skills. And I said, those are all critically important skills, but you're asking the most important skill for an intelligence officer is self awareness um, because a lot of the work you do, you're on your own throughout my career. Uh, I was on my own in the streets of various countries doing operations. There was nobody looking over my shoulder, quite literally and figuratively. Same thing goes for cyber professionals. You have to be self-aware enough to know about what your strong suits are, what you're weak at, what you need improvement at, and finding a path on your own to self-improve on those sorts of things. Because you can, you know tell your, your superiors you know that you're perfect and you're doing everything great. You can tell your subordinates you're doing that. You theoretically can tell your peers, but that's a heck of a lot harder. But the one person you cannot lie to is yourself. And I think the most successful intelligence professionals and, frankly, the most intelligent, uh, successful military officers are, are those who know, who are self-aware and are able to be honest with themselves and then improve over time. So it's, it sounds like a counterintuitive answer to your question, but I think, frankly, throughout the intelligence community, that is the most important attribute.
0: No, that makes absolute sense. And I appreciate that, that insight, because as intelligence officers, we need to be focused on the threat. That's a big part of the job. But before we can understand the threat, we need to understand ourselves, our own assumptions and our own weaknesses. And so... Transitioning over to the threat landscape itself, that's the next group of questions I wanted to ask based on your experience. I want to start with China as the largest threat. The Trump and Biden administrations have described China as the U.S.'s pacing threat. They've got a robust operational cyber capability. They have a lot of resources and people assigned to that goal. So how would you say, based on your experience, the Chinese government uses cyber operation to achieve their strategic goals and if you have some examples that you could cite as well
1: yeah i mean, i would say you know every nation state uses their cyber tools very differently just as every nation state uses their intelligence tools differently and i would argue that the prc's primary goals with their with their cyber tools are the continuing theft of intellectual property across the board in the u.s industry to advance to, to sort of leapfrog ahead and capitalize on 30, 40, 50 years of American research and development on a variety of fields, including uh, most critically the defense industrial base and, and our you know very advanced uh, national security technology. So I, I would argue that the PRC, because of that and, and because they intend to use their cyber tools not only to collect intelligence, which I would argue intellectual property theft, is collection of intelligence, just not the way that we would do it for a variety of legal and, you know, constitutional reasons. We just don't use our intelligence tools for that sort of thing, but it still is intelligence collection. And then preparing, you know, for a potential, you know, God forbid, conflict, nation-state conflict between the United States and China, or, or you know, PRC and, and other nations uh, in East Asia or elsewhere, um, using those tools in phase zero of conflict. Uh, what we would call operational preparation of environment and understanding those environments or pre-positioning capability to support the PRC uh, during a period of conflict. So, you know, China uses their cyber tools like that, but our other adversaries, Russia, uh, the DPRK, uh, Iran, they use their cyber tools effectively just very differently. And, And we've seen the Russians attempt to use their offensive cyber tools to I would argue fairly minimal effect in Ukraine, thanks in large part to the Ukrainians' capabilities in defense, the Ukrainian's capabilities and partnerships with a variety of American private sector companies and sorts of things like that. The Iranians use their, their cyber tools for, you know, very effectively in my mind, and that is not a position of advocacy, it's a position of strategic analysis in the realm of coercive diplomacy. As we saw with their attacks against uh, infrastructure uh, in the Albanian government, as an expression of their dislike of the Albanians hosting the Mujahideen al-Hulk, an opposition group you know, against the Iranian government currently. Another example of how a nation state uses cyber tools. And finally, the DPRK, you know, they, they wanted to raise money for their weapons programs. The sanctions uh, against the DPRK were really effective. So they started stealing cryptocurrency and attempting to convert it. And, you know, billions of dollars of uh, cryptocurrency and attempting to convert it into fiat currency to fund their weapons programs, you know, but again, using their cyber tools to do that. You know, it all varies. The United States uses its cyber tools very differently, as you well know. But for the the four big nation state adversaries, I, I, I don't think you can make other than they're looking for common vulnerabilities and common uh, approaches to to exploit. I don't think you could, uh, n- none of them are, are exactly the same on how they employ their cyber tools.
0: Okay. No, thank you for the broad, the broad overview of all those different cyber threat actors. I want to ask one more specific question on China before we move on to some of the other ones. And that is in the vein of the discussion that you had about preparing for an invasion of Taiwan. we've, in our class, we've done some research into the Volt Typhoon group and some of the operations they've conducted. And there's some consensus out there that that's one of the operations they were conducting was setting conditions in cyberspace for some kind of Taiwan contingency. And I'm wondering if that, if you think that's an accurate statement and what you think the Volt Typhoon group is attempting to accomplish or has attempted to accomplish specifically.
1: Yeah I, mean, I, I think the vault Typhoon situation was you know beyond the cross taiwan straits I mean it was it was you know again phase 0 battle a- attempting to you know prepare the environment to to a PRC advantage principally in critical in critical infrastructure and and prepositioning on critical infrastructure you know so so there the intelligence community had intelligence related to that but the private sector had quite a bit of information as well and and I think I think the the greatest success, as it as it relates to the release of Vault Typhoon, was the nexus of the pu- public private sector, principally the intelligence community, and then DHS, CISA, uh, and and the private sector, Microsoft being the principal contributor to that issue. I think that. You know the most important lesson learned is that those sorts of partnerships are going to be critical to any future exposure and mitigation of any nation state threat against critical infrastructure it just so happens that vault typhoon was tied to the prc or is tied to the prc uh and it won't be the last one i, I don't know what it will be named next um uh, vault, vault typhoon uh, it is a naming convention you know that that will probably continue as, as it rela- relates to that threat but but again exposing these, mitigating these, and then providing the private sector with classified you know, or, or declassified, but U.S. government provided intelligence and fusing that with private sector intelligence, so to speak, uh, I think is going to be critically important to defend the United States against that ongoing threat to our critical infrastructure.
0: So that's a good segue to the important topic of public-private partnership, especially in cyberspace. So what other Examples did you see when you were director of CCI of successful cooperation between the federal government and private cybersecurity firms or private tech firms? And maybe what are some some recommendations you'd make going forward as to deepen that cooperation, make it more effective?
1: Well, our DNI, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, even before the start of the Biden administration, when she was uh, still civilian, was was part of a study that concluded that the intelligence community needed to demonstrate better value to the private sector. And there's been a number of us, both on the operational and analytic side, who've been arguing that as well for some time, particularly folks that are in the cyber community. I mean, throughout the war on terror, the private sector needed information to defend themselves, but really, frankly, just threat warnings were, were the way we would go on that. The private sector owns the overwhelming majority of of infrastructure in the united states and elsewhere in the world and there is no other choice that we have than to provide them not only intelligence so to speak but also uh strategic analysis that puts these threats that they they have a pretty good handle on from a tactical threat perspective but the strategic analysis that provides the context that they need to, to defend their network so you know, I made re- reference to the current DNI actually during the pre- previous administration, you know, during the COVID pandemic, we were as a nation developing uh, vaccines uh, that was called Operation Warp Speed, as, as you may remember. There was enormous amounts of nation state and non-nation state cyber threats against the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer and otherwise Merck, uh, companies like that. And so we we had to provide uh, those those the threat analyses to those companies because they're not traditional tech companies that have a vector in the national security community already. They tended to not have any staff that had security clearances. They, they tended to not really have a whole lot of connectivity to the Intel community at all, a, a slightly bit more connectivity to DHS CISA, but not, but not a whole lot. So, you know, the Intel community collects intelligence against a wide variety of threats. We provide analysis to our partners within the U.S. government, and then our partners find ways, you know, in collaboration with the intel community to declassify that information, to make it effective, to defend whatever it is we're trying to defend against. And we did that during Operation Warp Speed, and I think it had a demonstrable effect on, on you know, alerting to the pharmaceutical companies that they needed to tighten up their security so that they could continue on their exquisite work of, of developing Uh, MNRA vaccines and whatnot, um, which obviously we are all very thankful for. But I think that that's an example outside of more traditional military preparation of the battlefield that we will continue as an intel community to play a supporting role, not a lead role, but a supporting role for DHS, CISA and others to do that very, very critical work.
0: So one follow up question on that is, is that a difficult process to do to get that information to the U.S. firms or U.S. entities that need it? And is that something that we're trying to make
1: easier as the relationship expands into the future? The, the, the delivery of the information wasn't the hardest part. It was, it was getting the information cleared. I mean, the Intel community, typically they're, they have a, the easy button is to say, sources and methods, we can't tell you anything. Give us a call later. And you know, I, I think we've moved past that. Now, the Intel community, other than uh, the cybersecurity director, which has a very public facing uh, role, especially with the defense industrial base, Rob Joyce uh, and his team, are—you are, know they have an entire apparatus whose sole job is interfacing at an unclassified level with, with the defense industrial base. CIA doesn't really have that, at least not in a, in a public sort of way. So really delivering the intelligence to customers who do have that role most frequently DHS CISA outside of the defense industrial based context or FBI cyber when there's a mitigation issue or they're attempting to gather information to prosecute a a cyber actor, either domestically or internationally, you know, so, so yes, it was challenging the declassification process, but I think we've developed a repeatable process that it's going to be considerably less difficult in the future.
0: Okay. And on, on the topic of process and policy, I have a broader question about cyber policy in general, based on your experience, I want to talk about the concept of persistent engagement, which is a term that General Nakasone put forward. Uh, He's the director of of the NSA and the commander of Cyber Command for the listeners. That's how he describes the current US approach to cyber operations. So what, what does he mean by persistent engagement? And how does that differ from other domains of warfare or other intelligence disciplines specific to cyber?
1: So, yeah, I'd say off the bat that General Paul Nakasoni is one of the most phenomenal leaders we've ever had in the intelligence community and national security community in general. You know, how he has transformed NSA and Cyber Command over the past several years uh, has been extraordinary, and he's built a phenomenal team. You know, so that when he uh, ultimately retires, which I think may be imminent, uh, General Tim Hawk will take over for him. I mean, he's set, set us up for success. That, you know, all that being said, I mean, I think there's an ongoing debate within the intel community, within the broader cyber community about strategy and tactics and, and how uh, we go about e- executing, you know, th- that critical mission. General Lacoste is focused on, on persistent engagement. And de- depending on how you look at persistent engagement, um, there are different sorts of ways one could perceive that. Is it persistent operations where we let the adversary know that we can get into their networks? That that's one version of it. Another version is persistently engaging human to human with our allies and partners globally, and not just our Five Eyes partners, but other other you know more non traditional partners, so that that they have the assistance they need. Uh, to mitigate cyber threats, but and that's a second version. Uh, a third version could just be persistently engaging in operations, which I frankly would call intelligence operations, so that you understand your ad- adversary's capabilities, uh, your adversary's plans and intentions, and can then develop uh, in partnership with wh- whatever national security partner that may be, geographic commanders within the U.S. military the State Department, et cetera, can develop plans to mitigate uh, or or combat, in quotes, that threat. Because sometimes, and hopefully most times, military engagement is not necessarily the the only way you want to defeat those adversaries. Sometimes it's diplomatic engagement, and that's what our Assistant Secretary uh, for Cyber Policy, Nate Fick, he focuses a great deal of effort on that. So there's a lot of ways to look at persistent engagement. So I, I think it's less important to put a, you know, one sentence defini- mission definition on, on what General Nakasone is talking about. But, you know, how each agency persistently engages in whatever domain is their responsibility in the cyber world, I, th- I think it is a more important way to look at it. I think from an academic perspective, we are still resolving and having a debate, you know, again, all at the unclassified level as to exactly how we want to employ uh, our strategic cyber tools outside of the intelligence context, you know, for, for the future going forward. But I, I think General Locasoni has set us up for success. And I, I think it's fantastic that he has a team that studies these issues uh, at depth.
0: Okay, so persistent engagement can be broadly defined, not just in cyber operations themselves, but also in our engagement with, with adversaries and competitors and our engagement person to person with our allies. So, in in what ways would you say persistent engagement is a departure from previous older conceptions of cyber operations, and is it an improvement?
1: I, I mean, I think again, the, the academic di- discourse on this is is probably not completed, but I think a, a majority of folks would w- would argue that we had, a decade ago, or or maybe slightly less than a decade ago, were worried that the use of cyber operations uh, that would would be detected by adversaries would be escalatory and could lead to a devolution of international relations with, you know, name your country uh, adversaries or otherwise, and that it would be escalatory uh, in the same context as, you know, sending a carrier battle group off of the coast of of an adversary's uh, littoral region or you know other escalatory uh, events. You know arming our our partners against other adversaries or whatnot. And I and I think over time uh, we've discovered analytically, both in the intel community and in academia, that cyber operations do not pose the same you know majority of context. I mean, I mean I'm sure there would be a context where they would, but you know in the majority context is not perceived as as escalatory as other domains, uh, air power, sea power. Uh, and land, land power, and and you know we we have to evolve in that sense because the adversary is persistently engaging us. If that's uh, you know, even though they probably wouldn't define it that way, but you know, between the PRC intellectual property theft, you know, most recently uh, cyber attacks against uh, water treatment plants and water distribution infrastructure in Pennsylvania and Texas uh, from from the Iranian side in the guise of. You know, civilian attacks although you know it's obviously sponsored by the Iranian government persistent engagement so to speak by the DPRK and theft of cryptocurrency and, and and you know use of infrastructure outside of of Korea so that you know all of our adversaries are persistently engaging and I and I think the point being uh, that in 2023 we can't afford to sort of wait on the sidelines and unilaterally disarm our cyber tools now, is every aspect of what I outlined from a policy perspective resolved? No, not 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 in the least bit. Because I, I mean, there's a frequent discussion about cyber norms and what that all means. I mean, I think very smart people in the U.S. government on the policy side, on the diplomatic side, on the law enforcement side, and the intelligence community community side are, and in academia are having those discussions. But that's good. That's that's the whole point. I mean, we had deep deep intellectual discussions as a country after World War II to figure out what our deterrence posture was going to be against the Soviet Union, uh, against other adversaries, and how we would deploy our tools of national power. I think it's very logical and very healthy that we're having that discussion currently in the government and outside of government.
0: So norm setting is an important aspect of our development of cyber policy, trying to establish the rules of the road for engaging with with competitors and adversaries in cyberspace. And would you say the, the inherent unescalatory nature of cyber operations is an advantage both, both for us and for them?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the same, you know, a tank is a tank, uh, a airplane is an airplane and a cyber tool is a cyber tool. Now you can have various, in all those disciplines, you could, you could have various levels of training and competence. But the vulnerabilities that, you know, uh, Internet protocol space is what it is. And the vulnerabilities are are out there. Yes. So so it's it's to our advantage. It's to to our adversaries advantage. Um, But but what we you know can't do with with the discussions on cyber norms, and and I'm very glad we're having those discussions is, is, you know, again, in air quotes, unilaterally disarm, you know, we have very different uh, ethos in the United States. We have very different laws. Uh, We have laws on privacy. As you know, uh, the FISA 702 uh, debate, uh, I'm astounded this late in December that it's, it hasn't been resolved because uh, it's supposed to expire at the end of this month. Um, but those are all healthy debates that a, f- a free society needs to have. It's un- un- unfortunately, some very unfree societies have the same access to the cyber tools that we do, and we just have to factor that into our, our policy making.
0: So aside from avoiding escalation, what, what are some other aspects of cyber operations, cyber intelligence collection that make it particularly advantageous and set it apart from some other intelligence disciplines or uh, methods of of conducting international relations?
1: I mean, I, I think you, you kind of go, It was a Bonnie and Clyde who said, you know, why do they rob banks? It's because that's where the money is. Um. You know why do we do cyber operations? Because that's where the information is. You know the overwhelming majority of business in the world, be it government business or or private sector business, is conducted in IP space. So therefore, you know an, a, an intelligence community, regardless of what nation it, it represents, is going to have to go where the information is. Does that mean that human uh, operations or imagery collection is not important? It's extraordinarily important, but the daily information flow that may, you know, may have happened through mailed letters or whatnot, you know, 100 years ago, it's just, it's just not a thing. And information, you know, is coming through the internet and, and, and obviously intelligence agencies need to be in that space. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's, we didn't pivot as a community to cyber operations because we thought it was, you know, a moonshot that gave us some amazing technological uh, advantage over our adversary. It just happens to be where the the information we need to get to is.
0: And so as the cyber realm grows in size, it's, it's becoming more relevant for policy makers, for the intelligence community, as you said. And so the... The Biden administration published their first ever U.S. national cybersecurity strategy in March of this year. follows pretty quickly after the 2022 national defense strategy, national security strategy more broadly. I was hoping you could summarize the national cybersecurity strategy from your perspective and what, what it achieves.
1: So what, what it achieves immediately is... Discussion. I mean, Chris Inglis was our national cyber director, and and before he left, I mean the la- his last act was to ensure that that uh, was on the president's desk uh, for sig- signature. It lays out, you know, five pillars of responsibility, which a major portion of it is government responsibilities, but a major portion of it is obviously private sector. I think I you know there's a number of things that are in there that restate stuff that we've been talking about as a community for quite some time but for the first time you know the highest level of of the executive branch the white house uh lays out you know how we're going to going to approach that and you know as the director of the center for cyber intelligence you know my role really fit into pillars two and two and five pillar two being dismantle the cyber threats nation state or a non-nation state that goes into the intelligence collection that goes into that and and enabling our partners uh, throughout the US government to, to affect that pillar. Pillar five is, is to expand and deepen international partnerships so that we can defeat and defend against the the cyber threat, you know, again, nation state or non-nation state. And that is a core mission of the CIA since 1947 and the rest of the, uh, the, the, uh, the intel community, not necessarily in cyberspace, but building foreign partnerships. And, and obviously, the State Department's deeply involved in that. And although Nate Fick's arrival to the uh, State Department in his current role uh, preceded the release of, of the strategy, I mean, it was obvious that a major portion of that uh, pillar was going to be Nate's uh, res- responsibility. You know, there was a implementation plan that was a, a couple months after the release of the strategy. So I think that's a more concrete way on how we're going to execute that. And then a lot of feedback, mostly constructive uh, from the private sector as, as to where uh, the strategy was going to go, because an enormous amount of responsibility uh, lies on their shoulders. And, and you're going to see, you know, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission came out with a set of rules. As as to you know how companies have to report threat you know uh, breaches of, of their cybersecurity. So incrementally, we're going to see execution plans you know come out uh, from various government agencies as to how they're going to implement uh, that you know Chris English's vision of the strategy. Secure by design is a portion of that 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 DHS CISA a software, you know, a statement of work, a software, a software bill of materials, you know, that discussion is currently ongoing. But I I think it's a great first step. And it's astounding to me, frankly, that we were able to get the cybersecurity strategy out in the sprint in March. Uh, And then, you know, most recently, uh, we had the release of of the White House uh, artificial intelligence strategy, which again, is a vision statement. It's a Identifying problems and then you know highlight uh, pointing a light on potential solutions, um, a very lengthy and dense document that that I really think is you know we're you know granted the European Union just passed some uh, legislation on AI but you know I, I think we have a pretty good roadmap in the United States and frankly the overwhelming majority of the companies that are doing the legwork on artificial intelligence are American companies so um, so I, I think. All of these sorts of policies, whether they're from the executive branch, whether they're the execution of the policies by government agencies, uh, I think we're heading in the right direction. I think the next step, hopefully in 2024, uh, is, is getting uh, Congress on the legislative side to actually uh, lock this in with actual, you know, legally binding requirements uh, within the country. That's going to be an enormous amount of debate between the government and private sector, but that's the way it's supposed to be.
0: So we're coming towards uh, the end of our time here, so I'll, I'll wrap it up with one, one more question that brings together a couple of the things we just discussed, and that's future policy steps, future legislation, which you which you already summarized a little bit. Many of our listeners are students, grad students, young uh, policymakers or government officials. So which areas of cyber operations or the cyber community do you think they should be focusing on so that they can contribute to this discussion and hopefully shape some of the future policy or future legislation that's coming out for cyber operations
1: i would argue all of them uh i mean if it's a career move uh, if you're a person who wants to have an internationally facing experience in cyber either you know team up with nate fix team over at state department uh or uh with my former team over, over at cia if you want to be, you know, a lot of jobs are, are also internationally facing, but principally a domestic assignments. Uh, there's other elements of the intel community that are, are overwhelming. The majority of them are domestic. Uh, if you want to focus on the threats internal to the United States, go to Jenny Easterly's team at DHS CISA. They're doing some amazing work there uh, supporting uh, the private sector. If, if you want to be in law enforcement and mitigate and fight the threats to American critical infrastructure and American companies, uh, join, join uh, Brian Bergeron's team over at FBI, FBI Cyber. Or if, if you happen to have some technical skills uh, or uh, some legislative experience supporting Congress, um, join the private sector and help, help those companies, either the, the big Companies like, uh, you know, Google and Microsoft or some of the other cybersecurity companies, CrowdStrike obviously is associated with the Al- Alperovich Institute or a variety of other uh, companies out there. So it's really more be in the cyber cyber world, be on the analytic, the operational or the defensive side, uh, but just to s- decide which, you know, which part of that community, uh, you know, is most suitable for you because you can't go wrong with any of them. Absolutely. So lots of good, lots of good opportunities out there. Professor Boyd, thank you so much for your
0: time. Thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate your, your insight and I really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. All right. Happy holidays. For all our listeners out there, Small World, Big Problems is a student-led production sponsored by the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nitza School of Advanced International Studies located in Washington, D.C. Small World Big Problems can be found on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to become part of the podcast, suggest a guest for the show, or just send us your feedback, please email us at saisstrategypodcast at gmail.com. This episode was researched by Martin Makarian and produced by Andrew Whalen. I'm your host, Luke Lytle. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. See you all soon.